Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. To set the scene a little bit, what's that? There's an echo. You sure? I think it's just, okay, we're good. So to set the scene a little bit, there is the main character that we moved on. We moved very quickly from patriarch to patriarch or from generation to generation. So there is a very quick transition to the third level of, of patriarch. We start at Avraham and Sarah, or rather Avraham and Sarai. We move quickly to the next generation who are, who are, who are, <laughs> who is the next generation? Yitzchak and his brother. Who's Yitzchak's brother? Who's Yitzchak's brother? Yishmael, thank you. Yitzchak has a brother, his name is Yishmael. They have issues to say the least, right? And Yitzchak's got some troubles. Also, Yitzchak has a troubled relationship with his father for all sorts of complicated reasons. And who's Yitzchak's partner, who we learned all sorts of things about today? Yitzchak is partnered with, his wife is Rebecca. Okay, very good. And Rivka has a very interesting relationship with God. If you're in the learning uh, with Shir Harash and Beitenu today, then you learned with our rabbinic intern, Yael, all about our uh, that particular relationship that Rivka had with God. Perhaps it was a very direct, prophetical relationship even. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with um, with Norm Green at the end in which he hypothesize something that I love, which is that perhaps God made a decision after having sent a, uh, a shiliach shlichi messengers to Sarah, that God sent messen- said, messengers don't work very well. That didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work. Now I'm going to go directly to Rivka. And what I love about that is I'm saving this now for my Seder table. So nobody, you know, you can steal it for your own Seder table. But uh, so then by the time that we get around to the Seder story, God says, I'm just going myself. You know, at that point, like I'm done sending messengers. So there is quite the, the direct kind of prophetical, direct conversation that's going on at that point. Now, what's so interesting is that we are so intertwined in the vertical relationships. And I don't mean quite literally that God is in the heavens, but rather in the philosophical vertical relationship between the human. Please, please, while we're while we're learning. The the vertical relationship between God and and the human beings. Right. So while while the vertical relationship is um, so deeply talked about and so deeply thought about, we're talking about God calling upon Avraham to go forth from, from Avraham's native land, right? To, to go forward and to leave his native land. And we're talking about God calling upon Avraham to sacrifice his son. And we're talking about Rivka speaking with Avraham, uh, uh, rather speaking with God about these two nations who are turn out to be rivaling in her womb. We then turn in the story of Jacob and his two wives and his two most prominent Pilag Shot, these two women who have relationships that are ostensibly childbearing relationships with him, and they become really important horizontal relationships. So we delve into what these 
human relationships are. And that's what I want to focus on today, which is this deeply human moment that takes place between Jacob and his beloved Rachel, Yaakov and his beloved Rachel. Okay? And it's a moment that is important for us to understand the cultural context of, but, even, but rather than delving into the sociology or anthropology of it, we're going to look at it through the lens of the many years of commentators who each understood it from their own cultural perspective and from the lens of their own cultural time and place and why it was that tears and kisses were the way in which human emotion was exchanged in that time and in that place. So let's get the context of the story. Then let's look at the verse and then let's look at what was said about that particular verse. So what happens is that Yaakov goes traveling. He has a dream in a place, right? Where is he? We, we heard about it from Marshall a little bit. Yaakov leaves Beersheba. He sets out and he puts his head down in this place where it turns out God was, right? And he has this dream, wakes up in the dream, and he winds up in, uh, we're in, still in chapter 28, and he makes this vow. He says, if God's with me, then I'm going to, uh, uh, and if I return safely to my father's house, God's also going to be my God, all right? So we're still in that space of, of uh, patriarch, God, matriarch, God, like very vertical relationship. But then chapter 29 comes along. Always remember that the chapter markings are Christological. They always remember that not only are they later, we don't divide by chapter, we divide by parshas. Okay, so I, I, those chapter divisions, chapter 29, that, that was not done by a Jewish court. That's done at a completely other time by a completely different theological group. Okay, just always keeping that in the back of our minds. So then, though, I don't think they're wrong. It is a different chapter, right? It is a different kind of chapter of the story. Jacob resumes his journey, and he sees a field, and he sees some sheep, and he starts up a conversation. So he says, my friends, where are you from? We're on, chap we're on verse 4. Where are you from, my friends? Uh, and then uh, we get we're from Haran, and that sounds familiar. This is very exciting. He says, oh, do you know? They're playing Jewish geography. They're so excited. Do you know Lavan, who's the son of Nahor? And what do they say? Of course we know him. Oh, Shalom Lo. Shalom Lo. I'm so excited. You know why? Does anyone know the secret behind this? My daughter's name is Elama Ayan. And we named her Elamayan for the sake of the song, because it's so fun. We also named her that because of a, uh, of a story from Pirke Eliezer, in which there is a wonderful story about the idea of a self-replenishing font and a Ma'ayan Hamika Bera love. So it also has like some really nice meaning behind it, but also the song. And then the second verse of the song is Hashalom Lo, okay? And it comes from this scene and this idea of the well. So Hashalom Lo, just they hide him from, okay, is he, is he well? And he, they say, yes, he is. And by the way, do you see that? Probably they said, do you see that nice looking girl over there? Do you see that woman over there? 
Okay. There's his daughter. She's coming with the flock. It's still too early. Too much of that. The bigness of the day to round up the animals. Why don't you give them some water? Water this flock and take them to pasture. Nuchal ad asher yeasfu ha adarim vagalalu et ha evim me al piha beer vehishkinu hatzon. Yeah, but here's the issue. We can't because we can't do it until we round up all the flocks. And then we have to roll the stone, that big, this big picture of flat stone. Okay, you may know the scene, you may not know the scene, but can you picture the flat stone? Everyone know the flat stone? It's not like a stone, it's a stone, right? It's flat stone, so you gotta push the stone. When they say roll the stone, it's really not a good verb for it. But basically like roll, push the stone off of the mouth of the well, then we can water the sheep. So then Rachel comes forward with the flock and then Jacob sees her, okay? And we're gonna skip to line 10. Then he sees Rachel, the daughter of Lavan Achi Imo, the brother of his mother, the Etatzon Lavan Achi Imo, and the flock of Lavan Achi Imo, uh, the of Lavan, the brother of his mother, Vayigash Yaakov, Vayagel Eta Evan. He goes forward and and rolls off the stone may al air from the mouth of the well, Vayashk Etatzon Lavan Achi Imo, and he goes and he waters the flock of his uncle Lavan, Vayishak. Then Jacob kisses Rachel and he breaks, he lifts up, he lifts up his voice and he wails. So a couple of things one, that we are not going to get into. What two verbs here are remarkably similar in those last two verses? What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vayashk and Vayishak and Vayashk. Exactly. So the watering verb and he kissed, like from Neshek, are extremely similar verbs. And I, I, that is so worth delving into. And maybe next year on this Parsha, that is exactly what I'll get into. And I find those two, I, I, it is most certainly not unintentional, right? That's really interesting. Also, what phrase, which we are not going to get into, what phrase gets repeated again? And again, and again in this passage. Lavan imo. Lavan, the brother of his mother, right? His, his uncle Lavan gets repeated again and again. When he goes to water the flock, it's the flock of Lavan, his mother. It's not Rachel's flock. It's not the flock that Rachel is caring for. It's Lavan achi imo. It's the flock of Lavan achi imo. And so what could that possibly be doing there? worth going into the idea of like the provenance of that flock the legacy of his family there's probably something really important to go into there we're not going to do that this week instead we are going to talk about the human emotion that emerges in that moment so let's look at the commentary okay we're gonna look first at rashi rashi our 11th 12th century school of commentary from france and areas thereabouts says vayefk Rashi is hung up on the, the notion of Vayevk and the word of Vayevk and the crying here. 
Also, Rashi knows something that we know if we've read the Torah before, which is that Vayefk is a verb that we see a lot from here on out in the Torah, specifically in Bereshit. Can someone name at least one other place where this comes up? In Bereshit, can you picture a moment when you hear Vayefk? Because it sticks out orally since there's that final chaf with the, with the dagesh in it. Jacob weeps when he thinks that Joseph's dead. And then let's just stay on that vector for a second. When else does he weep? Or when else did they weep? Right. Yeah, it's at their reunion, if I'm not mistaken. It's in Parshat at the end of me, Kate. Right? It's nope, beginning of Vayigash. Uh right. So a page 279, Genesis 45, verse 23. He doesn't quite cry when he hears that Joseph is alive, but then he goes down and uh, can't find it. Moment of crying. Someone's going to find it and you're going to tell me when you find it. And there's a wonderful moment of weeping. You'll find it. You'll find the weeping and then you'll, you'll wave at me when you find it. Okay. But yes, there's another moment of weeping. There's another moment of weeping as well. It comes from earlier. Oh, Tybal found it. Yes, Tybal. I didn't find it, and I'm not sure that I remember. Maybe I'm just hoping. But when okay. he realized his brother Esau isn't going to hurt him, does exactly. he weep then? Yes, that was what I was going to say as well. So when he reunites with Esau, that's what I was about to say. Very, very good. So he's standing across the river. His family's by his side, you remember? So he has stolen the birthright from Esau. I'm not, there are no spoilers because we read Toldot this morning. So he's stolen the birthright from his brother Esau. And now he's got to reuni reunite with his brother, right? And he's pretty scared that his his uh, brother is going to like probably attack him because his brother he's heard has amassed all these people. He sent a pretty nasty note. Uh, very, very scared about this. They reunite and out of relief, it seems right. He falls on his brother's neck and he weeps. I didn't curate all these texts for you, but Rashi is aware is the whole point that Vayethk is not a lone verb here. It is an expression of extreme emotion and it's not a lone expression of romantic emotion. Vayefk seems to be a, a deep expression of emotional catharsis, right? It's a powerful uh, expression of, of emotional catharsis. So here's what he says in this moment. He has a lot to say. This is a long-ish Rashi for a moment like this on one word. Because he he intuited or foresaw in the Holy Spirit that he wasn't going to be buried, that, that sorry, he wasn't, that she wasn't going to be buried, that she, meaning who? Rachel was not going to be buried with him in the, in the cave, in Machpelah. Interesting, right? She, she's still to this day, there's this conversation about where, where Kfurat uh, Rachel is, right? It's not in, in the cave of, of Machpelah. So first of all, that's all we get from this Rashi in particular on that. And then he moves on to Devar Acher, which we'll talk about for a minute. But picture the moment. This Rashi, for which there is, um, he's, he's pulling from a uh, Genesis Rabbah. Genesis Rabbah is an ancient collection of Midrash. So like many other Rashis, he didn't invent this. Okay, it's coming from uh, 10 centuries earlier from a collection of Midrashim. He's pulling a Midrash that says 
in that moment, he tsapa, he, he had a flash. And what was that flash? What did that flash contain? He, he foretold, first of all, that she was going to be his wife. He saw his whole life before him, right? Most of the time when we talk about somebody's whole life flashing before their eyes, what do we think? We think death and we think, do we think about their whole life ahead of them or do we think about their life behind them? We think about their life that passed, right? And instead, what this is, this Midrash is like an oracle. So this is rare and I find it very interesting and I'm curious, I don't know because I'm not, I, I'm not an expert in Midrash. I don't know if there are other places where we see this, but it's like an oracle-esque moment in which in the moment of embracing her, he flashes upon their entire life. And of all the things that he foresees, if he can foresee that they're not, that she's not going to be buried with him, contained within that sentence is the understanding that he knows that eventually they will successfully have children together. They'll have Joseph together. Joseph will be lost. Joseph will be found. Right? All of this, he must understand all of these things. Joseph becomes a dreamer who foretells things because Jacob is the kind of person who can hug a person and see their whole life up to the point that his wife will not be buried with him. He sees all of this, but the thing that sticks with him in that moment that causes him to weep is, <gasps> has anyone seen Hamilton? Do you know about the gasp at the end? There is a gasp. Hamilton's wife, Eliza, at the very, very end, there's a gasp and it's an unexplained gasp. And this is exactly what I thought about at that moment, right? It's a completely unexplained gasp in the notes. She gasps at the last moment and the curtain falls. And the question is, because there's this moment where they're all together, like what is she gasping about? And Lin-Manuel Brand has been asked about it, the actress who, um, who did not win. She's the one who was nominated, but didn't win the Tony. I wept. I may or may not have been watching it second night of Shavuot on a timer. Uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. This is now recorded on YouTube. Um, but uh, she was in, stunning in it. And it's all Midrash, right? It's all Midrash on this idea. But this is what I was thinking about. To flash forward to a whole life. And this is the thing that you gasp at. <gasps> that I won't be buried by her side. I could stop the shiur there and that's the thing that I, I that it just oh, shivers down my spine to know that you're not going to be buried. And the, the truth is that I don't think that's where I am emotionally about my own death and who I'm buried next to. I frankly would like, as my family knows, because ethical wills are wonderful and you should, again, if I, I could stop my shiur here, if I just said, please tell your families what your wishes are, don't make them guess, it's a wonderful thing to do. I would love to be buried in like a, the greenest burial possible. And it really doesn't matter to me where I am on this earth so long as I go back to it. That really doesn't matter to me. But I can understand from this text, from this one liner, just what emotional weight exists in that, in that stunning moment of, oh my God, I finally found her. I'm going to pause there on this one, not read the Devar Acher so we can learn the other Midrashim. And if we have time, we'll read the other part of that Rashi. But I want to get to Sforno, who is three centuries later. It's 15th century Italy. Okay. So he gives us a little bit more, although we don't, we don't ever really know if, this, if the hook that we're given is exactly the hook that they consider. But the, the same part of the text. Sforno has a completely different take, but I find it so sweet. And I'm gonna tell you why I find it so sweet, but you're, you're gonna tell me why you find it so sweet, maybe. By the way, I'll pause here for a second, just say some of you may notice I teach 
some version of this series of texts every single year on on this Parsha because I love this line. I just add to it or take away. I I change. This is a slightly different because I'm not going to just cheat and teach the exact same text, but I love it so much. Okay, so I teach some version of this every time I come across uh, this Parsha and I get to teach. So sorry, not sorry. Had it only had been that they had gotten married, he's 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 bereft that they hadn't met earlier, because had they met when they were younger, they would already have children. He's sad for all the years he's missed. Well, yeah. Oh no, he doesn't even know. Well, maybe according to the other midrash, he knows that he has to wait. Uh, yeah, wait. Joel says, well, "Wait until he finds he has to wait another seven years." Right? Um, has anyone here? I mean, I, I won't. I won't do a poll, but you know, anyone here who knows someone who's gotten married for a second time? You know, I'll tell the story because it was told live here last one. Um, you know, a week ago, Wednesday night, Steve Stein, who's Hazan Steve Stein, who's the outgoing executive vice president, really the executive director, professional, for the last 25 years of the Cantor's Assembly, um, he lost his wife uh, to disease about, uh, I think at this point, maybe about five years ago. And he reunited with a childhood best friend of 50 years. And uh, she had also lost her husband, and they are now together, he and Franny. And um, it's just stunning to see them together and there is a there's a um, a piece of this emotion in their relationship where you know not that they regret any of the life that they lived with each of their respective partners but had they had had they been together they would have had children of their youth you know the love that they have together is that kind of a love um and and there is a regret that lives with people who find each other so late in life um and it's real and it needs to be acknowledged and it's right here in the text this understanding that Yaakov Yaakov saw Rachel and knew and perhaps actually I mean you joked well but I I think there actually is something buried in that commentary about the understanding that that Yaakov wasn't going to get as many years with Rachel as he wanted to have. There was something that he knew, even in that first embrace, like, this is so good. She is so good. There's no way I'm going to get everything that I want out of this woman and out of this relationship. I, I definitely feel that. Tybal, I see you holding at that digital hand. Um, and don't you think there's something at a meta level that talks about just the Jewish framework, the over that that's what I mean, and sometimes it's been the greatest weakness and the greatest strength. Like if I think about the gold on my ear quotation, which I'm not going to do now, but that there are different ways in the world one can see marriage. And this is just such a strong statement that it's about building the gen next generation and looking forward. And that's how you evaluate a marriage. Yeah, I, I agree that it's very possible that the way that Sforno saw it in 15th century Italy was that he saw her and he he worried, he wondered, he lamented that they wouldn't be able to build the family that they needed to, to build. And perhaps there was a little bit of that oracle as well. He saw her and he he perhaps even foresaw the infertility bit, right? Maybe there was even right. that. I mean, I was about to say that's what makes it so, I think, extraordinarily difficult in a Jewish world exactly. to make sure that singles, whether by choice or not by choice, feel included, that yeah. couples who would have wanted children and 
or singles, whatever, wanted children. That's why I'm saying it's both the greatest strength and the greatest weakness. But here, this midrash is just so unadulterated that that's just how you evaluate it. Not, I we could have had more years of companionship or we could have more years of shepherd or whatever, but we could have had more children. Yeah, precisely. Um, I, I completely agree. And I, and I, that strikes me as probably something that was very culturally relevant in the 15th century and also is evergreen to the Jewish people, right? We never stop complaining that there aren't enough Jewish babies. Uh, and there are more sensitive and, and less sensitive ways of doing so. Um, so Radak, who is uh, between these two um, commentaries time-wise, the reason why I put Radak third is that Radak goes in a completely different direction, reminding us that this relationship is not only one of romance, but also a relationship of family tree, right? Because these are also cousins. No, right? This is a family reunion also. So what Radak says is, <laughs> this was a shel simcha, because when close relatives meet after not seeing each other for so long, they're, um, I love that translation here, the emotional cup runs over. It's hard not to, it's hard to control your feelings. They, they cry for joy. Right? They cry for joy. This Bichiyah was a crying and a lifting up of, of a voice for joy because they were relatives. This was family. And I feel that this explanation, as unsatisfying as it might be to the romantics among us who get, you know, goosebumps or whatever you call them in your family, um, you know, when we think about all those romantic reads, it might be the truest read when you think about the repetition of and his brother and Levon, his brother's his mother's father's mother's brothers like what the repetition of the family tree over and over again um and i i think that there's something about that that uh family reunion and and finding one another after so much time as well I wonder if there's something of recapturing of that spirit in contemporary times as well as people sort of reclaim their ancestry and try to find each other again in modern times. I think that people have that, but it, it meant something different to them. It meant something on a deep emotional scale. It meant something profound to them. And Radak reads that as a family moment. He doesn't read it as a romantic moment. Now hold that thought and hold the emotional thoughts and we're going to read something I've never put on the sheet before and we're going to end with this read. I don't have time for that other Rashi. We're going to end with this read before we do benching. So this is from Root Rabbah. Now almost every piece of the Tanakh has a collection of Midrashim called X Rabbah, which is a collection of ancient Midrashim and by ancient I mean from the turn of the first millennium. Okay, And this is Root Rabbah. It is a commentary on the book of Ruth. Okay, very good. So we're going to be hearing about Orpah because Orpah is a character in the book of Ruth. And so we're going to hear that Orpah makes her way into the, uh, uh, um, into the character, into the commentary and actually into the very beginning of this commentary. But it's not really about Orpah. It's about kisses because up to this point, we really focusing more on the cry than on the kiss. But I love the way that this particular text from Root Rabbah characterizes what kisses are and what kisses can be. So this says the following Vatishak orpa lachamota. And Orpah kissed her mother in law. So this is the kiss that takes place towards the beginning of Root, the very, very beginning of the story. And then the commentary begins. Kol neshika shel tfilut, 
bar mitzvah. All kisses are kisses of. How would you translate it? Tfilut. Yeah. How might you translate it, Marshall? Licentiousness or? <laughs> Jill says horniness. Yeah, our kisses of. Like I would say, affection would be the most PG way of translating it. They're of. Um, they're kisses of. Of. Uh, Desire. Desire. Very good. Oh, Fran, you're hired. Very good. Okay. Kisses of desire, right? I, I think desire might be like, even if not the most direct, probably the most appropriate one for our purposes that also gives a read that we need. Very good. I, you're hired. Okay. Neshika shel gedula. This is the first that is an exception to the rule. Unshika shel prakim. Unshika shel prishut. So here are the three exceptions. The kiss of greatness, and we're going to get a biblical example of that. A kiss of absence, right? Or of, of, um, of, uh, mm, yeah, of, uh, distance, I was going to say, but longing or distance. Yeah. Um, good. You're also hired for that. And then a, uh, a, and then a kiss of parting. Okay. I, th- I think parting is a good translation. Shell could why do I even put the translations on if I disagree with them? Because it's fun to disagree. I like arguing with myself. That's very fun. Okay. Or with the people on the page. So I, I almost always win, Alan. Thank you for saying that you hope I win. So dichtiv. So we're going to get examples of each of these things. So dichtiv v'yikach Shmuel et pacha shemen v'yitzok al rosho v'yishakehu. So this is the example of a kiss of greatness. This is from Shmuel who took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. So this is the kiss of anointment that takes place in Shmuel. The kiss of anointment. So you can kiss in as part of anointment. First of all, this is a case where a kiss is taking place between two characters of male gender, and it is uh, taking place in a ceremony of anointment, right? A mishichut, basically. And that and that is considered not one of tefillut, right? So, so kisses can be kisses of greatness, right? Mm-mah. Oh, I bestow upon you this honor. Then you've got the kiss of absence, and this is going to be the example from uh, Shmot, which is what is this example? He met him at the mountain of God at Horev. Does it say he kissed him in there? No, but there's the assumption. What's happening there? Yeah. And there's an assumption that, that Moshe and Aaron have a moment of, of intimacy between brothers, intimacy in the most validating and, and loving um sense as they are are passing um basically a, a priestly moment between the two of them and finally the parting one and this is the example of orpa and her mother-in-law right as her mother-in-law says go go back to your people basically right and and uh root says um that and orpa um, uh, sorry um original name of mother-in-law is Naomi, I was like, what? What's her original name? Naomi, uh, right? Mara, that's later. But Naomi, uh, so Naomi says, "Go back to your people." So Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, and and it's a um, it's a kiss 
of gratitude almost, right? Because she says it's basically parting, but it's parting thanking her for allowing her to go back to her people because she could have been obligated as Root took that obligation upon herself. But Orpah, if you know the story, she goes back to her people because uh, she is no longer really bound to her mother-in-law since her husband has passed. And Rabbi Tanhuma adds to this list, okay? Adds the list of exceptions and says, even a kiss of closeness as it is stated, right? Um, uh, I'm trying to find myself back in the here. Shak Yaakov shel krivut. Shel krivut. What do we usually use that word for, krivut? What does what that ring of? Karov? Krovim. What do we use that, what do you use that for? For avelut. That's the technical term that we use for avelut, for relatives that we mourn. So it harkens back. Kurivut, closeness, is also the structure by which we define the seven categories of relatives for which we are bound in avelut and relationships. And I see this commentary of Rabbi Tanhuma as harkening back to that Rashi and that Midrash Rava in which there is that that moment where he's met Rachel and that kiss is a kiss of krivut. It's both a kiss of closeness and also an immediate kiss of understanding the obligation to, he, he understands that he is double obligated in krivut in a kind of odd way that we wouldn't understand in 2022, but he is double obligated. He is both relative and he is also becoming partner. I find all of these reads just spellbinding. I do, I could read it all day long, but I think that the most important thing to understand is that we are onlookers to the story of intimacy between Yaakov and Rachel. And I hope as you look into the story and into the words that are in this story, that you find in it little snippets of ways that you see people relating to one another, both in these relational mannerisms, in the kisses and the crying out, and also in ways that we just no longer see, right? In ways that we don't express ourselves anymore, but are, impassioned and bring the characters in our story to life because we hear of them crying out to one another, kissing one another, weeping on one another. Uh, and I hope this brought the characters a little more to life. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.